the way you get credibility is to show that you're not pushing a partisan agenda for one side or the other. Because once you're perceived as that, which the media came to be perceived as that, you know, during the Trump years, it did a lot to erode our credibility. And that's why I applaud Chris Licht at CNN, the new Jeff Zucker, who's saying, your primetime anchors, stop pushing, you know, partisan agendas. Let's go back to basics. Let's report the news without spin. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Michael Isakoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News, where he is also editor-at-large for reporting and investigations and the host of the Skullduggery podcast. Previously, he was an investigative correspondent for NBC, as well as staff writer for Newsweek and The Washington Post. Isakoff has written two bestsellers, one called Uncovering Clinton, where he was in the middle of the Bill Clinton controversies in the 90s, and with David Korn, a book called Hubris, about the selling of the Iraq War. Michael has a very good story about his rise through the reporting ranks and how he thinks the press needs to cover politics in the time of Trump. You should listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Michael Isakoff of Yahoo News. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, Michael. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I'm Michael Isakoff, the uh, chief investigative reporter for Yahoo News and longtime Washington journalist with Washington Post, Newsweek, NBC News, and uh, just a guy who's been around for a long time. You have. I'm always interested in people's careers that took them to interesting places. Tell me a little bit about how you grew up and kind of your path into the world of journalism. I uh, grew up uh, in the 60s and 70s, uh, so Vietnam era, Watergate, um, you know, civil rights, all that, and went to Washington University in St. Louis. What did you study there? Uh, well, I was a history major. But I was also an editor of the uh, school newspaper, Student Life. And this was the era, this was the uh, 70s, and um, actually 72. And I remember reading in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, they subscribed to the Washington Post News Service and reading these stories by these guys, Woodward and Bernstein, about the Watergate break-in and ties to the Nixon White House and getting quite 
fascinated and worked up and in the weeds. And Watergate was a formative experience of my college years in 74 when Nixon released the tapes. I remember uh, me and my uh, buddies used to sort of reenact them. Somebody would play Haldeman, somebody play a Ehrlichman, somebody played Nixon. Uh, we would just do it. So I would say my um, uh, interest in journalism grew out of that uh, experience 50 years ago. I know you went and got a master's in, in journalism. What did you do in between or was there any in between? So I had an internship at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch my senior year. I graduated in 74, was hoping to um, stay on with the Post-Dispatch, but it was economic uh, hard times. I couldn't uh, get a job there, and I basically was sort of unemployed for a while uh, and knew I wanted to be a journalist, couldn't get a job, so I did go get a master's at uh, Medill uh, School of Journalism at Northwestern. They had a Washington program. It was a one-year masters, but the last three months were in Washington. You wrote for small newspapers, uh, and I was writing for a newspaper called the Alton Telegraph in Alton, Illinois, just across the river from St. Louis, actually. And um, there was a huge national controversy uh, going on at the time about whether to build a new locks and dam outside Alton. This was at the juncture of the Mississippi and Illinois River. The barge industry and the uh, farmers were pushing for this expanded locks and dam that would allow bigger barges to go down the Mississippi River. The environmentalists had teamed up with the railroads, who saw the barges as competitors, to oppose it. And there were huge national hearings scheduled. When my uh, internship or my program uh, with Medill writing for the Alton Telegraph ended, the hearings were about to begin. I convinced the Alton Telegraph to hire me as their Washington correspondent to cover the Alton Locks and Dam hearings before the Senate Environment <laughs> Committee for uh, $100 a week working out of the uh, Senate press gallery. And I covered those hearings like they were the Watergate hearings. <laughs> I did profiles of the committee members. I filed multiple stories every day on the committee hearings. And um, that's what got my start in Washington journalism. That's so interesting. I mean, it's, it's just taking advantage of an opportunity and an intense interest, it sounds like. I mean, uh, it's a great way to begin a career. My, my sister went to the uh, Medill journalism program. And, and so I heard a little about it from her. But what was that a valuable time spent, do you think? I mean, I had a good time there. I went because I wanted to be a journalist. <laughs> I didn't have a job. Uh, so, you know, is it necessary uh, to go to journalism school to be a journalist? Of course not. But, you know, uh, depending on circumstances, it could uh, open doors as it did for me. And I had good experience. There were some good professors there that I learned a lot from. So uh, it was a worthwhile experience. These days, there are so many routes uh, to go to do what I do uh, that there is no one clear path. What did the Alton hearings lead to for you? <laughs> well, actually, it, it, I parlayed that 
into uh, another job after a while for something called Capitol Hill News Service, which was something founded by Ralph Nader, actually, back in the 70s. His uh, idea was that um, members of Congress needed to have watchdogs covering them, and most newspapers around the country didn't have Washington bureaus to do that. And so the idea is, you know, let's hold uh, members of Congress accountable by setting up a news service that would cover members for local newspapers in their districts. And I went to Capitol Hill News Service um, and said, I'll give you a client if you give me a job. I would take the Alton Telegraph with me to Capitol Hill News Service. Joe Nocera, who later went on to be a columnist for the New York Times, was then the editor of Capitol Hill News Service, and he uh, signed off on the deal. I went to work there. So I started uh, writing for the Alton Telegraph for $100 a week. I got a raise when I got hired by Capitol Hill News Service. I was being paid $8,000 a year, which struck me as a living wage at the time. And then um, Capitol Hill News Service later um, merged with something called States News Service, which you know had the same concept. That was my early years in Washington journalism. It was interesting. The uh, the Capitol Hill News Service, which was a Nader, you know, offshoot. I remember one of the first stories I did. I was writing for the Illinois paper, but also some Indiana papers. And there was a senator at the time, Democratic senator from Indiana, Vance Hartke, who championed a lot of what Nader was pushing. In terms of you know consumer reforms and and other stuff, but it also was very compromised by relationships with the railroad industry and other big corporate interests. And one of the first stories I did was about Hartke's compromises and why was Ralph Nader the purist uh, endorsing him? And I interviewed Nader, who was. Technically, I suppose, my ultimate boss at the time and challenged him on it. And he seems to have appreciated that, that I was giving him a hard time for his endorsement of uh, Vance Hartke. Um, so we got off onto it. Good terms on that, in which I was playing my preferred role in life as a journalist, which is challenging people and their assumptions. I think that challenging people and their assumptions, it's an interesting time for doing that because you have to make choices about who you challenge and why. And if you challenge somebody small about something small, it's very different than challenging someone big about something big. And when we have, I don't know, a president who wants to not leave office, you have to decide what is the most important story? How do you think about that nowadays? How do you think about which are the stories that you go after? Who are the people you challenge and how do you prioritize your reporting? Well, that's always a work in progress and, you know, events uh, happen that change your perspective. One of the things I try to do is uh, keep an open mind. I don't have a political agenda as a journalist. I recoil at the idea that we're at a stage in American political life where we have to only expose one party and not the other or one movement and not the other because I find plenty of hypocrisies and corruption on all sides. And I know there's this pushback against the idea of both sidesism. Like, okay, we shouldn't try to equate 
the um, uh, the foibles and the crimes of one side by ignoring. Yeah, we, we should only focus on you know that which is the greatest threat to American democracy right now. Absolutely, Donald Trump and his conduct was so off the charts and outrageous and, you know, beyond the pale that it has been the main story for us to cover in these times. But that does not equate to me to giving Democrats a a pass on their issues. I believe we have to be vigorously investigating and reporting on the foibles across the political spectrum. And the biggest damage we can do for ourselves as the media is to be perceived as to be pushing a political agenda and not be the umpires calling balls and strikes. Although a huge portion of the media is definitely not of that same opinion right now. Um, Yeah. And that's true. And I I don't agree with that. I instinctively recoil at signs of bias when I read mainstream media these days, because I do think there's far too much of it. What was next for you after state news or whatever capital turned into? Yeah, um, I got a job at the Washington Star, which was then the afternoon newspaper in Washington. I was on the Metro desk covering Prince George's County. And um, I'll tell you a story because I've been around for a long time, done lots of stories, you know, been involved in lots of controversies and covered lots of scandals. I always say that my personal high point in journalism came very early on in my days as a Washington Star Metro reporter. I was assigned to Prince George's County. Um, suburb of Washington, and I was the Prince George's County government reporter out and going driving out to Upper Marlboro every day. The county executive at the time was Larry Hogan, father of the current governor of Maryland. Republican had gotten lots of you know media attention during Watergate because he spoke out and advocated the impeachment of of Richard Nixon, which was a surprising thing for a Republican congressman to do. Uh, In any case, I learned early on uh, about a sleazy land deal that County Executive Larry Hogan was pushing uh, to give some prime piece of property to have it sold to the Washington Suburban Sanitary Commission that would have been a boondoggle for his biggest political patron some developer who had pumped a lot of money into his campaign and actually also employed his wife, Larry Hogan's wife. So I did a big front page story, actually led the paper, you know, Larry Hogan linked to sleazy land deal in Prince George's County. And that was my first big scoop at the Washington Star, right? But, you know, a scoop really didn't count or get traction unless you got noticed, unless it got noticed. And the Washington Post, the big morning newspaper, major paper, uh, tended to ignore anything that the Washington Star broke. So the key test was whether or not the Washington Post would chase my Larry Hogan sleazy land deal story. And I remember going to the tune-in on Capitol Hill 
that night, the night that my story broke, waiting for the bulldog edition of the Washington Post to land on the bar at the tune-in to see whether the Post would chase my scoop. And 11 o'clock, plop, the papers come down. I look, and there on the front page of the Washington Post, with three bylines, is Larry Hogan leaked to sleazy land deal. And, you know, second sentence, this was reported first by the Washington Star yesterday. And yes, <laughs> that was, and I remember being with a bunch of buddies and, you know, we all drank and uh, I toasted my uh, big coup at the Washington Star. And at the time, there was a uh, intense competition for who was going to cover the state legislature in Annapolis. There were always two Washington Star reporters who went to Annapolis, and the second one would be either the Prince George's County reporter or the Montgomery County reporter, right? And there was an intense competition for that second slot. I, as the Prince George's County reporter, wanted it. And the Montgomery County reporter was... Um, a young woman named Maureen Dowd. And um, we were friends, but we were competitors at that point. And uh, the Metro editor chose me over Maureen Dowd as the uh, uh, state legislative reporter for that session. Maureen didn't talk to me for a year. She eventually... Uh, um, uh, you know, uh, did. And, you know, we've been fast friends ever since. But my big scoop on the uh, Prince George's County land deal uh, got me my uh, next big break as the uh, state legislative reporter in Annapolis. Out of curiosity, how did you come across that particular scoop? Sources. <laughs> sources. Still yeah. secret, huh? <laughs> yeah, still secret sources. I cannot divulge to this day. But um, but there was a guy on the a Democrat on the uh, county council by the name of Paris Glendenning, um, who was you know uh, Larry Hogan's you know big uh, political foe. Later became governor of Maryland himself, uh, and um, he was always good for the uh, anti-Larry Hogan quote <laughs> to put in the paper. Um, and actually, you know, I got a podcast these days, uh, like you, it's called Skullduggery, and we had Larry Hogan, the current governor, son of the said Prince George's County executive, who actually was on his father's staff at the time. He was, you know, young kid in his 20s, just out of college, was working for his dad. He remembered my reporting on his father. I can't say he did fondly, but he was very adult about it. Uh, on that subject of sources, I mean, you're an investigative reporter. Do you have a, like, a methodology? a system for like having a network of sources? Like if you were advising someone coming up who doesn't know how to do this, what would you say about how you build that over time? You know, it's all sort of, you know, personal relations, right? And, and how you conduct personal relations and how you forge relationships with people, friendships. There's always this sort of fine line between sources and people you're socially friendly with. That sometimes, you know, can be difficult to navigate. But if you get a reputation for somebody who is willing to be a straight shooter, you know, you'll find people uh, will talk to you on all sides. 
that's been my experience. One thing that strikes me about that Hogan story is like at the same time, here's a guy who as a Republican is, you're saying is willing to go against Nixon, the head of his party, and also is doing a, what you're, referred to as a sleazy real estate deal. People are complicated. I mean, this is, I think, becomes a theme in your reporting as you go forward, right? Like somebody who you might admire on one dimension might be kind of a jerk on another. And yeah, yeah, that's uh, absolutely the case. And, you know, I think that's more often than not the case, right? I mean, <laughs> people are people. Yeah. Uh, and, and look, politics is a, is a profession where there are you know, compromises all the time that have to be made. I mean, look at like right now. I mean, just to pick one that happens to be on the top of my mind at the moment, we learned this week that Biden is going to Saudi Arabia and plans to meet with Mohammed bin Salman. I mean, you know, <laughs> I did a whole uh, series on the uh, Jamal Khashoggi death for another podcast I do called Conspiracy Land last year in which I quoted Biden during the campaign talking about how he planned to make Saudi Arabia a pariah state, right? And that the uh, Khashoggi murder was beyond the pale and the Saudis needed to be held accountable. Well, we know who was responsible for the grisly murder and dismemberment of Jamal Khashoggi's body. It was MBS. It was Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. So if you believe that People who commit murder should be held accountable to then go to the country that person leads and meet with that person um, seems uh, a far cry from making them a pariah state for what they've done. But we've got an inflation crisis. We've got gas prices soaring through the roof. I get it. Um, we got Russia and Ukraine. and We got energy. Russia yeah. and Ukraine. So yeah. there are compromises. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. there are compromises one has to make. Um, Did you know Khashoggi yourself? I had met him. Uh, and I, uh, uh, I met him actually in Saudi Arabia in, after uh, 9-11. I went there and, you know, remembered him uh, and certainly knew of his reputation. Um, but, um, you know, the story is so grisly and you know, sickening when you learn what was actually done. And the idea that there's been accountability for this murder is nonsense. There was a sham trial um, closed door trial in Saudi Arabia in which, you know, the lower level people on the ground were convicted and then got pardoned. It's not clear how, or their death sentences got pardoned. It's not clear whether they're really in prison, but the people who were most responsible, the people who were in charge, um, particularly this guy, Katani, who was MBS's, you know, Dr. Svengali, his right-hand man, his enforcer, his henchman, none of those were uh, even charged, much less convicted of crimes. And of course, ultimately, as the CIA concluded, um, uh, MBS was responsible for the whole operation. Was the win where you get to go to Annapolis worth it? <laughs> you know, uh, it was in terms of, you know, prestige, I suppose. Uh, I don't know that the, uh, 
uh, stories I did from Annapolis stand the test of time today. I, I can't remember very many of them. You know, then I should look in 1981, um, uh, the star uh, closed. It was owned by Time Magazine. They shut it down. The first call I made was to the then Metro editor of the Washington Post by the name of Bob Woodward. I remember getting a call back the next day from his secretary saying, Mr. Woodward would like to see you the following Tuesday at 10 a.m. And I was like, yes, wow, I'm going to get hired by the Washington Post. They really want me. Of course, I didn't say anything to any of my colleagues at the um, Washington Star, all of whom were seeking a job at the Washington Post at that point. Uh, and I showed up in the Post newsroom at 10 a.m. as requested, and there was the entire Star Metro staff lined up oh, no. to talk to Woodward. <laughs> he did end up hiring me, and you know there was like a whole bunch. I mean, there's like 10 or 15 Star reporters who got hired at that time, maybe even more. And so I went to work for Bob Woodward on the Metro staff of the Washington Post. And I saw you on a panel at Politics and Prose with him. Yeah, uh, recently. Yeah. It's it's yeah. interesting, like in any industry these relationships can go back a long way. Yes, yes, yeah. they do. <laughs> How yes, was the post do. as a place to work? Um, you know, I had my ups and downs there. Obviously, um, it was an intensely competitive uh, place. And after too long, you know, I wanted off Metro to get onto the national staff. And that took a while. It didn't happen instantly. I had a sort of interim period on the business staff. So um, there were, you know, frustrations, of course, but I had, you know, some successes as well, broke some big stories, um, made it onto national. Yeah, I was there for like 13 years. Until what year? 1994. Got it. And was that, was Newsweek next? Well, yeah, yeah, I went to Newsweek. I had my ups and downs at the Post. I got into a conflict with editors about reporting on a particular story involving Bill Clinton and the claims made by a woman named Paula Jones about... Um, what does that go back to, she, 94? I thought yeah, that... Yeah. yeah, she came forward in 1994. The incident took place in 1991, but she came forward publicly. 94 is when, is when she first made the allegations, but in a very vague and not especially convincing way. But I took the time to interview her at great length after that, and then went out to Arkansas to investigate her claims and found them to be credible. I thought it was uh, serious stuff. It's kind of forgotten now, but um, of course, it ultimately led to Monica Lewinsky, which is a whole other story. But I mean, on its core, I mean, Clinton goes to this economic conference, spots a woman who strikes his fancy and instructs his state trooper to go fetch her, some woman he doesn't even know who's working for the state, go bring that woman up to my hotel room, right? Go fetch that woman, which the state trooper does, brings her up, and according to Jones's account, Clinton proceeds to make unsolicited, unwanted sexual advances, drops his trousers, and asks for oral sex. Who does this sound like today? Harvey Weinstein. You know, that's Harvey Weinstein behavior, right? The state trooper confirmed the essence of it that, yes, Clinton directed him to go bring that woman up to his hotel room. So I thought the fact that 
her, um, the state trooper under oath confirmed the basics of the story. Her coworker who was present saw it happen and described how shaken she was after she came back from that hotel room. Another friend who she talked to that day described how Paula Jones in excruciating detail detailed back in 1991, everything that she was saying in 1994, that plus another a whole bunch of other you know, indicia, including the fact that I was dealing with George Stephanopoulos, who was the communications director at, at the White House at the time, who blatantly gave me false information, insisted that Clinton wasn't even there when this supposedly happened. I disproved that quickly. So I thought there was a story there. It was in the days you know, before Me Too, but also well after Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill. And, you know, I argued internally, if we were going to take that seriously, we have to take this seriously as well. Or Gary Hart. or Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, Gary Hart was a little different, but, you know, this was a case of improper sexual harassment, as it were, that would be universally recognized as such today. I mean, there wouldn't maybe be a dispute about it, but there was, you know, big debates. I got into a fight you know, a verbal altercation with an editor, things got heated, matters got a little ugly, and I left and went to Newsweek, which actually is owned by the Washington Post as well. So it wasn't, you know, that big of a fuck you to the Post as uh, as I might have liked. Anyway, and then had a great time at Newsweek. Loved being at Newsweek. It was that story where I first became acquainted with your name, I remember. I mean, I'm about 14 years younger than you, give or take. And so, and I was following politics very intensely as many people do. Where, where were you at the time? Were you, uh, let's see, let's see in nineties. Yeah. Yep. In nineties, I was, well, in, in the mid nineties, I was in graduate school in political science at MIT. I was from Colorado. I had liked Gary Hart in the eighties. He was my Senator. I was a little traumatized by the way he exited the campaign. And I liked Clinton. I thought he was very intelligent. And it was very painful for me to watch his scandal come out. Uh, you know, you don't want the leaders, I'm a Democrat, the leaders on your side to show these kinds of character flaws. It's awful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, then I had a sort of great run at Newsweek, you know, for years. There was, uh, you know, all sorts of, I remember the Oklahoma City bombing, you know, the campaign finance scandals of the 90s. Um, you wrote a whole uh, book about the Lewinsky. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the uh, Uncovering Clinton, parts of which were uh, used in this American Crime Story series that aired last year. There was a Isakoff character in that. Uh, um, you know, <laughs> when you look back at Clinton and that scandal and the and the sort of breadth of his governance and all that, I mean, how do you see it now from post Me Too, post Trump, and everything else? How, how do yeah. you look back on? I that? mean, look, Bill Clinton was not Donald Trump. Okay, <laughs> Donald Trump, if. You know, Trump becomes the standard for, you know, presidential wrongdoing. We wouldn't have another presidential scandal because it's hard to imagine, you know, anything more egregious than Trump's conduct. But that said, Clinton's flaws were real. His 
way of avoiding the truth <laughs> was real and uh, you know perennial. Everything I reported on deserved to be reported on and exposed. The Republicans went too far by impeaching him. You don't impeach when there's not a national consensus to do so. And you know that's actually uh, a standard that, that you know gave me some pause during the um, impeachments of Trump, particularly the first one, although the conduct was egregious. It was an election year. There was not a national consensus. The polls did not reflect that a clear majority of the public, in the way that the clear majority of the public wanted Nixon gone in the 70s, that was not the case with Trump. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that, including the fracturing of the media and you know how we've all dug into our own silos so that we tune out information that doesn't conform to our prejudices. So we have a, uh, a real crisis of our political culture right now. Uh, um, but you know, what, what, what's my point here? That just because Clinton's foibles don't in any way match Trump's doesn't mean that you shouldn't know, cover them or they you shouldn't terrible. cover them and, and, and that they weren't deserving of being you know, fully exposed. Next for you, I guess, was NBC. Is that right? Yeah. Although, you know, I spent a lot of time, you know, at, still at Newsweek on 9-11 stuff. And, you know, I was you know very involved in that. And then, of course, the Iraq war. And I wrote a book with David Korn, Hubris, about the selling of the Iraq war, which did very well. So, you know, there was a lot, a lot going on in those years, and then when wa the Washington Post sold um, Newsweek in um, for like a dollar, it? yeah, yeah, it was like 2011. Anyway, that's when I went to uh, um, NBC. Mark Whitaker, who had been the executive editor of Newsweek, was then the Washington bureau chief at NBC. I called him up and. He hired me, and so I was uh, a, a TV correspondent for a few years. That was an interesting experience as well. I, I did some, um, you know, fun stories, broke some stories at NBC, but by and large, I went kind of crazy because, you know, doing what I do to, to, to get, you know, on nightly news for a minute forty or something, which is you know the usual length of the nightly news piece was pretty tough. And after a while, I was spending most of my time banging my head against the wall trying to get on air. You know, Oddly, at that time, the NBC bosses didn't really care about online stuff. There was the msnbc.com, which was their website. They didn't have their own. There wasn't an NBC News website. And you know, I could have written a lot more for that. I did write for that, but it got me no traction internally because they were a TV network at that time purely, uh, and um, were uninterested if I broke a story online. The only thing that counted was getting on nightly news of the Today Show. It seems like in some ways fitting that a longtime reporter ends up at a internet entity that didn't even exist at the beginning of your career, Yahoo, right? Uh, sure. Yeah. I haven't mean, thought like, about it quite like that, but yeah. Well, I mean, it's the world <laughs> yeah. has changed so yeah. much in journalism and it's, it is not, uh, even if you're filing multiple stories a day back in, uh, in, in early career. Now I see you on Twitter 
during a hearing, yeah. you know, every know. few, few yeah. minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, social media stuff is, I guess I get, you know, I do get into the Twitter thing. I try not to overdo it and not, you know, I'll be, you know, snarky or make asides or little observations. I try not to be too opinionated. You have like 120,000 followers. Does that mean something to you? Do you care if it's that or half that or double uh, that? You know, I mean, it, it's, it, it's, yeah, it's nice to have a, a number like that. You know, <laughs> some large chunk of people will see what you're tweeting, but you know, look, it's not, it's not journalism. I don't know what it is, but it's, you know, it's, it's a part of our sort of strange media ecosystem that we've got these days. And, you know, it's interesting because people on Twitter want to read stuff that makes them feel good about what they think, right? So if you bash Trump, which I'll often do based on actual you know, news. reasons he should be bashed, perhaps. Right, 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 right. Uh, you get all sorts of, you know, retweets and likes and all that. I'm sure a big chunk of my following comes from people who, you know, recognize Trump for what he is and want to read more and more about what a horrible guy he is. But when I tweeted a story I did about Hunter Biden a month or so ago, I get furious pushback. Like, why are you even doing that? What's happened to you? Where did you go wrong? And, you know, well, you know, there are some legitimate issues there. That, I mean, w uh, when you were at NBC, you said they were only concerned mainly with the, the TV time. What in your current job, chief investigative reporter, whatever the title is, what are they seeking from you? Like, you know, yeah. look, I, it's that uh, <laughs> content that goes on the web that helps them sell ads, I guess. I mean, we're now owned by a hedge fund, Apollo. What their game is or what they want out of all this, I don't know. I've never talked to them directly. Uh, is there complete freedom in what you report on? Do you get assigned no, I mean, thing. well, I get asked to do, you know, look like, all right, January 6th stuff, right? Yeah. You know, um, part of your job. Help us. Yeah. Yeah. I have the podcast, uh, podcasts. And you I know, do, I did do you that. propose those podcasts? Or? I did. I did. Yeah. I thought yeah. they were, um, you know, this is, we've been doing it now for four years uh, with my um, colleague, Danny Clydman, who'd been with me at Newsweek and, is the editor-in-chief of Yahoo and we're old friends. And we've added Victoria Bassetti, who's another friend of ours, who was on the Senate Judiciary Committee staff for many years working for Dick Durbin. Do I get assigned? I mean, look, I have a general idea of what you know I'm interested in and of what Danny's interested in and what would interest the people who follow, tend to follow my work. So. Uh, I don't need to get, you know, too much direction. I, I kind of have a, you know, feel for that. I, I was listening to, I think it was maybe the most recent episode on skullduggery. And in that, if I remember correctly, 
you said something about how the third hearing on the January 6th committee changed your mind about whether there were maybe indictable offenses in this sort of What's your I thought current- that 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 hearing um, where uh, Greg Jacob, who was Pence's lawyer, testified and described his conversations with John Eastman, in which he was, it was inc- clear- he was incredibly cogent as a witness. I thought yes, he was. Go- yeah. I thought he was a very powerful witness, and I thought he captured clear evidence that Eastman knew that this was all nonsense. That it was what he was proposing and Trump wanted him to do was unconstitutional. You know, Jacob testified at one point that Eastman agreed that if Pence did what Trump wanted him to do, he would get overturned by the Supreme Court nine to nothing, nine to nothing. So that's pretty good evidence that you know what you're doing is uh, to be as charitable as possible, constitutionally dicey. He pushed it anyway, and Trump knew it as well. I mean, it's it's curious to me, although it makes sense to some extent, that that Trump's state of mind, like if he truly believes that he won the election, then certain things he does are not illegal. Whereas if he knows that he lost, it's different. It's interesting that the same actions, if he's fully crazy and he isn't just seeking power, seeking to stay in office. But he's, but he's like misinterpreting the information or what do you make of all that? My analysis until that hearing was that the test was always, could they show that Trump or people in Trump world knew about the plans to commit violence and mayhem at the Capitol, right? And, you know, as we sit here today, um, we still haven't seen such evidence, even though the FBI and Justice Department has had access to, you know, all the emails and cell phones and text messages of, you know, the Proud Boys, the the Oath Keepers, the people who committed and meetings the, that uh, they had with people like Roger Stone in the right. Trump orbit, but like, well, yeah, yeah, but but we don't have, you know, the email showing, you know, Stone says, you know, we want you to go up there and, you know, hang Mike Pence. We want you to go up there and storm the, the, well, the they're, Capitol. They're pretty we, careful about leaving fingerprints or they're, I mean, that's like someone like me would tend to like assume things. And I think someone who's reporting on it, who has your responsibilities, has to be more skeptical and try to figure out, and the committee has to, try to figure out, can we connect all these dots? Is the preponderance of evidence in one way or another? Yeah, but when you get to, you know, the criminal standard, it's, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt. And you need either the direct testimony. Roger Stone told me I need to go up there and storm the Capitol and take over Pelosi's office, or Roger Stone says Donald Trump wants me to do that, or Donald Trump to Roger Stone saying, you know, get your guys to go there. We don't see that. So for a criminal standard on the violence, I have not seen it. Right. And I, I don't think the committee has. Well, and, but that Trump, may change. Right. And but, Trump has but, a style of, yeah. of like knowing what he's doing and walking up to lines 
more carefully than you would think, right? And like, you go there and you cause a lot of trouble, but be nice. You know, like he's always sending messages to be heard by more than one audience in those moments. He understands that. But the alternative, you know, statutes that are relevant here, obstruction of a congressional proceeding, for instance, um, yeah, there, I think you do have it. You know, it's pretty obvious. I mean, this whole idea that there was a dispute about electors, you know, and therefore they could be returned to the states. There was no dispute about electors. All the electors had been certified. <laughs> and then there were these fake electors who had their own meetings, you know, saying, we're the right electors. You know, it's like, you know, me anointing myself the Queen of England. That's not a dispute. Yet they created this phony dispute for the purpose of getting Mike Pence to exercise authority that he demonstrably did not have. That was pushed by Eastman and pushed by Trump and Rudy Giuliani, and it was all nonsense. This separate apart from the sort of larger question about, you know, should the Justice Department um, of a Democratic administration you know, prosecute the former president of a Republican administration? Does that have a banana republic feel to it that is, you know, not a good precedent for the country? That's a separate set of issues that, you know. I mean, I've, I've heard good arguments that it's a bad idea, and I've heard good arguments that it is a really bad precedent not to. Right. Yeah. And I think I buy both of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you can argue it. Uh, that, that is a completely legitimate argument to have. And, you know, one can see merit on both sides. But as to whether there is grounds for bringing a case, I think I think at this point there is um, another area where it was difficult to figure out how much there was there was in the Russian interference in the 2016 election thing. And you end up writing a book about that. Russian roulette. Russian roulette. To what extent was Russia involved? To what extent did Trump and his people try to pull them in? Those are separate things. What's your ultimate conclusion about Russia, Trump, and that election and related stuff? Russian interference in the 2016 election was real. It was unprecedented. It was multifaceted in scope. It was the hacking of the DNC and the Podesta emails. It's the weaponizing them by routing them to WikiLeaks, the Internet Research Agency, and their phony bots and Facebook postings. All that was real. Trump's conduct was egregious. He was trying to do business deals in um, Moscow, um, starting with, you know, well, actually goes back to the 1980s, but it got gets serious in, with 2013, the Miss Universe pageant, and um, he signs a letter of intent with the, the Aguilerovs, who are close to Putin. He's sucking up to Putin because he wants his business deal blessed, and, you know, his in his worldview. That's how you do it. You suck up to the big guy. You, you get his blessing because Putin can make this happen. So that, and and then of course that continued into while he was running for president, there were, you know, communications about trying to set up a Trump tower in Moscow. Um, all that was real. Now, at the same time, 
from today's perspective, the Steele dossier was bullshit. It was, you know, pushed by the rival campaign, the Clinton campaign. The idea that this was legal research and, you know, therefore it didn't have to be reported on FEC disclosure forms was nonsense. It, it actually, you know, that hooks up with one of my early um, reporting on Clinton, which was, you know, I discovered in 1992 that the Clinton campaign had hired a private investigator by the name of Jack Palladino to dig up dirt on women who might come forward to make allegations about, you know, their relations with Bill Clinton. And it was, you know, Palladino's job to just, you know, discredit any woman who might come forward by coming up with, you know, compromising information about them. And the payments to Palladino were laundered through a Denver law firm, so they never showed up on the FEC reports. I did a story on this on the eve of the Democratic Convention in 1992. Ran inside, but it just, you know, Clinton campaign pays for a private investigator to dig up dirt on women and hides the money. Right. So cut to 2000. 16. They're doing the exact same thing, right? I mean, not the exact same thing. The same method is used. You know, the law firm, Perkins Coie, hires Fusion GPS, owned by my old friend, Glenn Simpson. And, you know, none of the payments are disclosed. And when the dossier first leaks, you know, we did not know that this was the product of the Clinton campaign. The FEC, by the way, just recently fined the Clinton campaign for this, right? Saying, no, this was not a proper use of legal research. They weren't doing legal research. They were just looking for dirt that could be dished out to reporters like me about Trump and, um, and Russia. So I think that, you know. Not an abnormal thing for a campaign to do opposition research, though, right? No, no. Opposition right. research is fine. And, you know, it is often done in this way. But I think it is a clear violation of uh, reporting FEC, requirements. Of you, reporting requirements. This yeah. was, you know, what? Over a million dollars was paid by the Clinton campaign to Fusion GPS. That was a. That's not know, legal work by. Perkins Coie. It's not, no, of yeah. course not. Of yeah. course not. So, you know, all that was legitimate and it has given the Trump folks, you know, something to argue about saying you, the media pushed a lot of this stuff and with some exceptions by and large have not owned up to the fact that CNN, MSNBC, some uh, uh, news publications, you know, continued to push the Steele dossier nonsense long after the time that it was pretty clear that this wasn't going to hold up. So it's a it's a you know double edged thing. The Russian actions of 2016 were real. Trump's conduct was egregious, but you know, there were missteps and wrongdoing by the Clinton folks. And not everything that was reported about him in Russia was correct. Right. Of no. course. Right. You know, I mean, in fact, you know, when I look at the Steele dossier today and go line by line for it, if you take out everything that was already known and was already out there, I don't see a single sentence that Christopher Steele added that actually we can say today is true, right? And we know most of it is utterly false. 
Right. Yet we have not heard from my old friend Rachel Maddow acknowledging that she pushed a theme and a narrative today that just simply doesn't hold up. I haven't seen CNN you know, retract its early reporting that the Steele dossier was being corroborated by the FBI when it patently wasn't. And then you get people like Brian Stelter that say, oh, well, I'm not a dossier reporter, so I don't need to deal with that. You know, I'll just bash my competitor, Fox News, but will not take my own news organization, give any scrutiny to missteps that they make. Do you think like writ large, the coverage of politics by the press widely conceived is doing what it should do to educate the American people about their leaders and about what things are important in our politics. How do you look at your profession and their work kind of Yeah, broadly? I mean, look, there's, there is still, I mean, great reporting that is going on by major news organizations across the board. I don't tar with you know, a too broad a brush here. There is a dynamic we fall into where we get attached to narratives. And, you know, the easiest way to get on the front page, as at the Washington Post, was to conform to what was, you know, a preconceived narrative. So for instance, at one point I was the Richmond bureau chief for the Washington Post. So I was still on the Metro staff covering Virginia politics. And anytime I could write a story about race and say, you know, Richmond, the former capital of the Confederacy, it was, I don't want to say a sure way, but a good way to um, get good placement for your story, including on the front page, because it fit a narrative. And, you know, many times those narratives are real and, you know, legitimate and should be fed. But a lot of times, you know, there's news that cuts the other way that doesn't conform to your preconceived narrative. And I think we all have to make a, a more conscious effort to look for the pitfalls in our preconceived narratives rather than simply feeding them. There's that. And there's also, it seems to me, easier to just add to a story that's hot than to start another story while everybody's reporting and talking about this other thing. I think back to the Clinton email story, which there was something there. She, um, not very technical, doesn't really understand servers, you know. Right, look, she was trying to avoid Freedom of Information Act requests for her emails. It was, it's as simple as that. I mean, you know, she was not going to. It was on the front she, page of the post for the whole election, right? Which was enormously disproportionate to what was happening elsewhere on her opponent's side who was getting free media. It was, it was, well, right? Yeah. I mean, all right. I, you know, look, I, I, I'm, I'm of two minds on this because I thought there was wrongdoing by Hillary Clinton with her emails. Yes, her emails mattered. There were, you know, she was deliberately avoiding a federal statute, the uh, Freedom of Information Act, that you know requires her to turn over her emails. She was trying to hide them. No question. Now, was it you know in the scale of things? Yeah, I mean, there's a proportionality. I mean, part of it was being driven by the fact that it was a you know there was an FBI investigation, right, of 
the person who's being nominated for president and that in and of itself you know gave it further legs than perhaps the significance of the underlying conduct itself we somehow go into that election with that being the central thing reopening investigations and well that would that that's you can thank james comey for that right yeah it leads to the calamity that we have uh with electing a wannabe strongman to the the presidency and i've talked to a lot of reporters about it uh, and i haven't found anybody really willing to say we totally fucked up on this i i hear more like well, my editor thought it was important. It said something about the candidate, uh, Hillary, that we wanted to have out there. We didn't think that she could possibly lose. I look back on that with a lot of anger and a feeling that some of our institutions let us down pretty badly in opening the door to someone who should never have really... Uh, no, yeah. it's not the, the problem only- is I look I, the, the, there was plenty of aggressive reporting of Donald Trump in 2016 and there was plenty there was of plenty stuff. of just playing his rallies on well they, yes that's true thank uh, uh, Jeff Zucker for that and everybody else right yeah but Jeff Zucker led the way and of course he helped create Donald Trump and then like you know spent all his time regretting it and you know having you know bashing Donald Trump after he became president but it's a case of of the feeding the narrative with the Hillary it Clinton is. stuff because exactly- it, it it seemed to conform to you know the a lot of stuff that you'd been reporting on for about the Clintons going back to the to the early 90s or before yeah but my my the point i was starting to make is look the clinton i mean there was plenty of Trump reporting, aggressive Trump reporting, you know, the Access Hollywood tape, you know, the Russia stuff was out there. I mean, you know, his his sucking up to Vladimir Putin. They definitely end um, up being the most disliked candidates uh, for different reasons. Yeah, of right, any, of right, any. Right. I'm just not sure that that anything the press could have done would have changed the outcome of the 2016 election um ends up pretty being quite close but so it, almost anything it, it, anybody it was, was close and yeah. clinton won the popular vote but i mean yeah. there, there was you know clearly a broad discontent among large swaths of the american public about the state of our politics about our political culture and about a sense of elites who look at us with disdain and don't care about what we think and have to say. Think we're deplorables or whatever. Right, exactly. And I think that, you know, did as much as anything to help elect Donald Trump. I've read a number of the books by people like Ruth Ben-Ghiat that put Trump in context with the Orbans and the Berlusconis and the Mussolinis that he was following to some degree that same playbook that he looked to people like that around the world as examples. He liked, he, he would say that he liked them. He would tend to be meaner to democratic elected leaders. I think there's something quite persuasive about that lens, although I don't think it's a complete fit sometimes. Do you think that like, now that we know, now that we he was elected, he was defeated, he refused to go 
were in investigating his attempt to, to hang on to power, which is which contravenes everything that like even Nixon did in in 1960. I mean, like it's it's just an egregious change what he tried to do. And he's still running. He's trying to come back. He's very likely to get the nomination of his party. He's a, we'll see. We'll see. I'm, I'm not convinced that that's if, if, the yeah, case if they were voting point. today, I don't think there's any question. I mean, he's way ahead in the polls and his candidates, you know, to, even his endorsement of somebody else carries a lot of weight. You can tell anyway, given where he is and where our politics are, do you think that changes I'm sort of anticipating a no because of earlier conversation, but do you think that changes the responsibility of the big reporters like you, the press, in how we cover him? Do we, do we focus on inflation being bad or do we focus on we have a guy who won't obey the rules, who lies all the time, potentially coming to power again and really being unleashed? Does that change how you think about things? No. You do both. Everything about Trump needs to get reported, needs to be exposed. I do think that there is a danger that the media, because it has not shown sufficiently its, and I'm obviously speaking writ large here, not about any particular person, but I think, you know, the overall perception is that the mainstream media has not shown its willingness to be honest brokers and point out with sufficient clarity the foibles of the other side that, you know, the Trump reporting tends to get tuned out by people who are in the middle or persuadable or on the other side, that you're just talking to people who already know Donald Trump is a horrible human being and did things that were egregious. We've created an information environment where 40% of the country believes that that election was stolen. Right. Right. That's not good. That's not good. But the, look, look, can I just say, but there is a glass half full aspect to this. I mean, you oh, know, you, you go through, you know, everything that Donald Trump was seeking during that crazy period after the election. No Republican legislature went along with him. No Republican secretary of state decertified their votes. Bill Barr. But they are now passed in some states. They're passing laws so that they can next time. They're ousting the secretaries of face who didn't do that. They're setting it up. That was a dress rehearsal. I, you know, yes and yes and no. I mean, you know, that assumes that people who get elected to jobs like secretary of state or election workers are going to deliberately flout the law and monkey the numbers and simply install Donald Trump. The fact is you had a bunch of MAGA people in 2020 who wouldn't do that. Brad Raffensperger was a loyal Trump guy. Everybody in his office were loyal Trump people who supported Donald Trump. But they also understood they had a legal responsibility 
And they weren't going to violate that to further the political aims of the guy that they were supporting. And you see that across the board. I remember talking to Pennsylvania Republican legislators, MAGA people who got invited to the White House and asked by Trump to you know, change the results in Pennsylvania. And I, there was one Republican leader in Pennsylvania, total MAGA guy who said, yeah, but we have a law that says the electors go to the guy who won the most votes. So you can't do that. So I'm just saying, you know, from, from Brad Raffensperger to Bill Barr to Mike Pence to Mitch McConnell and to all those Republican legislatures out there, you know, they did the right thing in 2020. And yes, we got to watch what's going on now with, you know, the, the 150 you know. representatives voted not to certify. Yeah, the, I, know, you know. I know, I know, I, I know. But look, there was no, if you take the Greg Jacob testimony that even, uh, you know, Eastman recognized that what he was trying to do would get overturned by the Supreme Court nine to nothing, you know, that actually undercuts the idea that, you know, we were on the verge of losing our democracy because what would have happened, even if Mike Pence went along with Donald Trump, the Supreme Court would have overturned it. Joe Biden would be president. Donald Trump would be back in Mar-a-Lago and the Republic would still be standing. So I don't think we were quite as close to losing our democracy as some have presented it. Not that it wasn't serious, not that it, you know, everything they did shouldn't be exposed, but I'm just saying context. You didn't have the military, you didn't have any institution. There was no institution that was backing Donald Trump and his crazy ravings. It seems quite possible we could have had dead members of Congress, dead vice president, if a couple of breaks had gone the wrong way. Yeah. Yeah. And we could have had a dead Supreme Court justice the other day when the guy went to Brett Kavanaugh's house with a gun with plans to kill him. Right. I mean, yes. Yes. Right. I mean, I don't know. I feel uh, maybe we differ on this. I'm not saying I think that we came close to like Trump being president again, but I think we are in a extremely dangerous constitutional moment in our country with Trump and people like him and what they are openly conspiring to try to do next time. I mean, Trump might win fairly, right? And come back. He might- Well, that is democracy. You know, I gotta say, I don't wanna be too contrarian here, but you know, I have to laugh. Chuck Schumer released a letter a few months ago uh, because he was pushing a bill for decriminalization of marijuana. He pointed out all the states that have legalized pot, right? And he starts out the uh, letter saying, you know, our state legislatures are laboratories of democracy. And, you know, they are speaking through their elected representatives here. Okay, well, if they're laboratories of democracy, you have to accept they're going to pass voting laws you don't like. They're going to pass abortion laws that you don't like. That's democracy. You know, you're going to get results you don't like. Right. But the problem is sometimes in countries around the world, a illiberal leader comes to power through democratic means and then destroys the institutions like the press that you hold dear, which he's talked about as the enemy of the people. I believe Trump represents that kind of leader. I think he's 
been clear about it and he surrounds himself with people like the Manaforts and the Bannons who have helped that kind of person do it around the world. So I think he's a danger even if he comes to power democratically. And that's what worries me that we are not necessarily educating people that well about that danger. And polling shows that, like they're believing a lot of bullshit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, I, I, uh, uh, it is, it is a serious issue. <laughs> it should not be ignored. <laughs> we ought to be reporting on it. But I, I just think we have to be somewhat measured, look for context, and always be mindful that if you're just writing for the people who already think as you do, you're not breaking through. The way you get credibility is to show that you're not pushing a partisan agenda for one side or the other. Because once you're perceived as that, which the media came to be perceived as that, you know, during the Trump years, it did a lot to erode our credibility. And that's why I applaud Chris Licht at CNN, the new Jeff Zucker, who's saying, your primetime anchors, stop pushing you know, partisan agendas. Let's go back to basics. Let's report the news without spin. I hear that argument. I think there's a lot to it, a lot of merit to it. I think it's a tricky role right now, uh, made trickier in the last in the last seven years than it was before. I I, I agree with that, and you know, it's something we definitely have to wrestle with. Michael, what's what are you up to next? What is on your agenda? Well, I, um, you know, obviously continue to report this stuff. I've got a couple of projects in the works that I'll leave for later. <laughs> you know, don't want to necessarily announce them on your podcast, but I'd be happy to come back and <laughs> talk about them <laughs> down the road. Okay. If you want to look back on your career, quite prominent, what, what do you want to be remembered for? Hmm. Well, <laughs> you know, now I feel like I'm, you know, getting interviewed for my obituary at a time. <laughs> we got, we got twenty, we got twenty years, thirty years. Okay, <laughs> yeah, I got a little time. A uh, pot stir, but a straight shooter, I suppose. A guy who, um, you know, was willing to challenge, you know, conventional wisdom with, you know, digging up stuff that was inconvenient to people of all political persuasions. Well, I honor that job that you have in that role, and and I appreciate you talking to me for all this time. Uh, sure. Anything else Enjoy you want to say? It. No. I mean, this was fun. And, well, you have to let me know when this is um, going to be out there for the world to listen to. I'll just send you a note when it's up, and to the extent yeah. you're willing to share it, I, I appreciate that okay. because I think sure it, enough. it tells a lot about you. All right. Fun talking. Thanks again. This was a good, um, you know, in-depth uh, discussion, not not with sound bites, but, you know, trying to articulate, you know, a more coherent. Uh, nuanced you know, perspective. Nuanced, on nuanced. Yes. yes, I like that. Okay. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot. That was Michael Isakoff. Michael is at yahoonews.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com 
or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.